Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Today's episode goes deep down the rabbit hole of consumer investing. Jeff Canalupo is the founder and managing partner of Listen Ventures, an early stage consumer focused venture capital firm based here in Chicago. Prior to founding Listen, Jeff spent 10 years in the advertising industry at Leo Burnett, where he helped large brands innovate and craft their brand story. Since founding Listen, Jeff has invested in over 20 startups. He looks to provide branding and business strategy for consumer-focused early-stage companies. Jeff invested in one of the most successful consumer tech companies in the past 10 years in Calm, and he has an impressive roster of Chicago-based investments, including Factor and Catchco. Jeff believes that consumer investing requires equal parts qualitative, quantitative, and creative skills, and I absolutely loved picking his brain about the consumer space. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, Matt. The word on the street is you are a master of restaurant group ordering and darts. So I got to ask, first question off the bat, how did you come to acquire these two skills? <laughs> well, um, let, let me start with the darts. I I, I wouldn't say I'm a, a master maybe, but um, I can hold my own on the dartboard. And I it, it really comes from the fact that all through college, I bartended as a job. And so we would get the bar set up for the evening and me and the other bartenders waiting for the doors to open would sit there and, and play either pool or darts. So um, I played a lot of darts during my college days. And uh, restaurant group ordering is just, uh, I think it's a, a little uh, jab from my team as it relates to uh, when, we, when we go out for team dinners or we, we're out with our portfolio companies. We typically like to order family style. Maybe that's my uh, um, Mediterranean background, being uh, Italian and Spanish. But uh, I like to like to order a lot for the table, and we get to, we get to pick and share family style. What are you more excited for? Those large group dinners to come back, or just dominating an entire bar in darts? I'm like, I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso, but I'm like imagining that scene in my head when I imagine you playing darts. No, no, that's not. <laughs> Um, I'm definitely more excited for uh, large, large dinners. Yeah, I mean, me too. I think we all are. I'd love it if we could start, though, you know, with just hearing more about your background and kind of what led you to venture capital. That'd be great to hear, I think. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have a pretty atypical background to find your way into the investing space. I grew up at in the world of advertising and marketing. I spent a decade out of university at Leo Burnett, which is a Chicago headquartered global ad agency. And, you know, they're, they're really well known for kind of long-term relationships with, you know, the fortune 100, if you will. So, you know, the Procter and Gamble's and Kellogg's and Philip Morris's of the world. And so I kind of cut my teeth working on, you know, the brands that are very well known in the world. And, you know, what I, what I learned was that the job of, you know, of advertising and marketing for existing brands is to keep them relevant. And then I got a taste during my time at Leo of innovation and innovation strategy inside big companies. So how do they think about changing consumer behaviors and changing consumer tastes and, you know, how can they commercialize opportunities to go after them? And so I simultaneously fell in love with that, right? Identifying white space, figuring out how to commercialize a brand opportunity against that white space, and also realized 
why it's so challenging to be great at innovation inside of a big organization. And so that actually was the experience that led me to dip in my toe in the startup scene. And I had some friends in 2009 and 10 going to work at nascent places called uh, Groupon and Grubhub. And, uh, you know, I, there was a lot of activity starting to take place in Chicago. And so I, I just started to see if I, I had a role in that world, met with a bunch of entrepreneurs and you know, my takeaway was that there was a lot of really exciting things happening on the horizon with consumer businesses and business models. And I thought I could bring some of my skills on how you bring brand thinking to the early stages of those businesses. So kind of left and went on uh, uh, the last 10 years, which has been really kind of evolving the listen model of what we call capital plus capability in investing in consumer businesses. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's as good a time as any to talk about the thesis behind listen. And, you know, so listeners have an idea what kind of companies you guys invest in, what stage. And uh, the capital and capability model is something I wanted to touch on as well. I, I love that model. I think it's fascinating what you guys are able to do. So if we could, uh, yeah, just give us a rundown, I think, of uh, Listen and the team. Yeah, I mean, the, the quick high level on Listen is that we're, we're consumer-only investors. Um, and what we do is we look to what we call back and build the brands of tomorrow. And so, you know, our, our brand, Listen, was born out of the idea that the consumer's voice is louder than that of the established brands. And because of that, the dynamics of the industry has changed dramatically since 2010. And we've been investing in that new consumer economy. And so what we, you know, what we invest against are consumer tech and consumer product companies, but we're not categorically specific. We look for shifts in culture and shifts in human behavior. And then the opportunities for entrepreneurs to build brands against those shifts. And so, you know, a couple other things about the thesis is because we invest beyond capital, we've built a team of both investors and brand experts, people that have experience in consumer insights, brand strategy, brand design, you know, creative customer acquisition, which are all the areas of a consumer funnel that you need to be good at to build a good business. And so we like to think of our approach to investing and then adding value through the lens of kind of quantitative, qualitative, and creative talent. And we've built a, a squad of individuals that come from those different disciplines to give us a unique, I think, viewpoint when we're making investment decisions, and then a wide set of expertise when it comes to rolling up our sleeves and, and trying to help help our companies get to the next inflection point. What do you think... I think you've talked about this a bit before on some overheard podcasts, which for listeners is an absolutely essential early stage investing podcast. It's one of my favorite. But you know, you've talked in the past about that sort of paradigm shift of the consumer's voice becoming louder than the brands. Was that the rise of social media? Was that the rise of everybody sort of having an iPhone? I mean, what sort of do you think was at the root of that sea change that we saw, you know, in the 2010s? Yeah. So I, th I think it was two things. I think there's in 2008, nine and 10, there was two things that converged. One was everybody now has, you know, a supercomputer in their pocket. And then the second thing was, I think in 2009, Facebook hit a billion users, right? And so there was ubiquity on social media. And so what happened was, you know, all of a sudden before, if you had a bad experience with a product or a brand, you probably told one or two people. And now all of a sudden, if you had a bad experience with a product or a brand, you decided that you were going to tweet about it, write a blog, start a YouTube video series about why that product was so horrible. And so, you know, that's a dynamic shift in, in two things. One, the ability for people to communicate their opinions about brands and experiences in a much broader way and disseminate that information fast. And two, 
the platforms in which you engage consumers change from kind of disseminating a message to having a conversation and a dialogue. And so those dynamics did, you know, did a lot. They, it, I think it created a lot of challenges for existing brands that just weren't used to facilitating those kind of one-to-one relationships and conversations. And then it created the opportunity that we've been investing against for the last 10 years, which is, you know, putting the consumer at the center of a business model and, and building with them, not at them. When you guys started out, was the goal, I'm always curious about kind of the beginning of a venture fund. Did you guys start out with one with that sort of thesis in hand that you sort of saw this paradigm happening, you wanted to jump on it quickly as possible back in, you know, I think you said 2010, 2011. And secondly, did you always know you wanted to be able to bring this capital and capability model to your startups? Or is that something that evolved over time as you saw an opportunity to really get involved with these brands at the early stages and plug in? How did that kind of evolve? So it's a great question. I would say it's, you know, I, I would love to sit here and say that, yes, it was, you know, completely dialed in and and very well articulated and thought out. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that I think the thesis has always kind of been there in the back of my mind. And it was born out of my experience, right? I was working with these big companies and I was seeing how challenging, you know, operating this new social media driven world was. And I was also seeing all the innovation that you were seeing with startups taking advantage of the opportunity to have one-to-one feedback loops, right? And first party data and, you know, what that new business model looks like. And so the other thing that I, you know, I will say we did kind of have at the beginning stages was there was a graph I used in my original kind of pitch deck for Listen that kind of showed the convergence of brands and people. And the idea was that in this new world, brands had to act a lot more human because they were going to have to have a personality and a conversation and a tonality on these platforms. And humans, right? Some of the most popular humans in the world have actually become much more like brands, right? And you think about, you know, the paradigm shift we're going through with the creator economy and, and what's happened. That was kind of a lot of what drove what we were looking for, but also the ways in which you need to build a brand in today's world. And so to get to your second question, the idea of adding more than capital was really just a matter of what I didn't, I didn't know what venture capital really was, to be honest. I mean, I obviously had my requisite reading, but I happened to make a couple of angel investments in some early stage companies that were beginning to grow fast. And what I, you know, I didn't want to just be a passive investor. And so what I did was I negotiated, you know, on top of my capital, I said, Hey, I'm going to spend X amount of time with you. And here's where I can be helpful. It's brand marketing design, you know, thinking about utilizing brand to make decisions. And for that, I'm going to take some additional equity, right? And I'm going to be a partner and kind of almost a de facto kind of early stage CMO for you for a period of time to hopefully help move you forward. And so, you know, my idea was always, if you're going to write a check, you should want to, you know, do more than just sit back and hope for the best. And that, you know, that I learned a lot from those experiences. I was fortunate to make some some investments at that stage that, you know, went on to grow super fast and get some really attractive, what I would call real venture capital dollars. And, you know, I, I found myself sitting on boards with investors I highly respect from like Bessemer and NEA and, and other funds. And so I was a sponge and learned as much as I could. And, you know, in the last kind of five years, we've really evolved listening to a full-fledged 
firm that operates with that capital plus capability model. It's funny. I mean, you mentioned Bessemer. They have a they have a really interesting kind of thesis, or they call it roadmap about consumer investing. You know, they talk about it. it you're not really looking for unicorns. You're looking for earthquakes, and just how hard it is to in, you know to be an early stage VC investor. And um, I, I love that quote you have about prioritizing quantitative, qualitative, and creative chops. I I'd love to hear you just expand a little bit more on. Why is consumer investing, you know, so different? And I think some people would say almost more challenging than traditional VC B two B SaaS investing. Um, just curious, like what you think are the biggest differences and challenges for you? You know, I I think it's really hard to bucket anything in saying that it's more challenging than this or you know this. I think where your expertise lies is where people are going to feel more comfortable. And I just you know I know the consumer world, and that's what I've always kind of operated my business in, and and spent time in. And so I, I feel like maybe I just am biased towards it and I feel like it's a bit different. But the the one large difference, right, is that with most consumer companies, if it's a consumer product specifically, right, there's there's uh, there's uh, there's cogs associated with every product you sell. So the big difference there is just gross margin, right, comparatively to, you know, a technology company and a B2B SaaS model is at scale going to have, you know, 80, 90, 95% gross margins, which is a, a different world operating. And so consumer from our standpoint is it's typically not a winner take all model, especially if you're talking about consumer products, not consumer tech. And because of that, brand is critical. Brand, you know, brand is going to essentially differentiate you. You know, the relationship with your customer is really the only thing that nobody can compete away. Right. And so Thinking through the way you're going to market, thinking through the the way in which you're going to build the loyalty into your business model is critical. And so I think it's it's a matter of trying to understand whether or not there's an opportunity to build a differentiated brand when we're making an investment. You know, if the entrepreneurs are brand aware and understand what decisions you're going to have to make that sometimes might sacrifice, quite frankly, growth without impacting brand. And, you know, those are things that we're very conscious of. We try to be very vocal about with regards to build, you know, investing in the long term because you can't you can't use venture cap capital to subsidize authentic brand growth, right? You can use venture capital to subsidize just top line revenue growth for any business, right? You can go lose money on every sale and show this massive, you know, up into the right hockey stick growth, but at the end of the day. There's going to be a, a point in time where you're going to have to have unit economics that makes sense. And it's going to have to be because consumers love your brand. And so those are some of the things we look at when we're trying to figure out what deals to invest in. How do you assess the strength of a brand at those early stages? Because you guys are so early stage, because these companies may not have hit scale. I mean, what do you look for? Is it is it the robustness of the community? Is it kind of the fever pitch through which people speak about the brand? How do you guys assess a brand at such an early stage? The simple answer, Matt, would be that we listen. <laughs> uh, there we go. <laughs> you know, our, our, our kind of philosophy here is that- I teed, uh, I teed that up for you. <laughs> uh, right over the plate. Uh, appreciate the softball. No, um, it's- uh, you know, but in all honesty, that's true, right? Like you have to, the voice of the consumer needs to be at the table to win. And so I think we assess two things. One, why are consumers excited about what's happening? Even if it's a small amount of consumers, there's there's usually some early stage maniacal type of activity happening. Is there opportunity to build community into the brand? Is the business growing because people are telling other people about it, right? Like these are 
a lot of this stuff, by the way, too, is is more qualitative. You know, does the entrepreneur have a perspective on the reason that they're doing the business that garners attention and creates belief? These are a lot of the qualitative things that we're looking to underwrite when we're making investments. The other thing I will add is that we're not making investment in what I would call like on day one, like this is a, this is an amazing brand. Sometimes they've done an incredible job at building a you know an emerging brand, which is super, when we're super excited. Other times it's we believe that there needs to be a brand to lead this change. So, you know, when I look at history, there is there's not a lot of shifts in culture or behavior that don't have a brand right next to it, right? Like what's yoga without Lululemon? What's, you know, like there's always shifts in behavior and culture and there's always brands that help drive those narratives into the mainstream. And I'd say what's meditation without calm. So going to have to uh, give you a, uh, give you guys a shout out there. I I'm curious about calm a little bit. What that was, I think your investment was back in 2012. What, swayed you on that trend? I mean, I think back 10 years ago, I don't think that meditation and relaxation in general was, you know, as in vogue as it is today. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But at that stage, what did you guys see in Calm that that gave you so much conviction at the early stage? Uh, I mean, at that stage to be, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't just say it, it was the founders. And the the first conversation I had with Alex, he told me he was going to build the Nike for the mind. And we ended up, I think we had a 30 minute call scheduled and we talked for an hour and a half. And, and, you know, by the end of that call, I was convinced, at least in terms of the cultural movement that you knew had to take place was was starting to take place. People weren't really talking about meditation necessarily in the mainstream, but mental health, which had been always kind of, you know, swiped under the rug was just recognizably a crisis in our, in, in our world. And you you had to believe that in order to help that narrative become something that people got comfortable to talk about, that there would be brands helping to facilitate it as well as providing some solutions to it. And one of the things that always stuck with me from that first conversation with Alex, outside of the fact that he bought the calm, you know, domain name, I'm a brand guy, right? Like I, I a brand that owns the outcome of an experience emotionally is always powerful idea. You know, he organically had 300,000 unique visitors to the .com a month, right? So there were people interested in the idea of unplugging and taking a step back. And, and you know, the always-on society that we've been living in was the tension that existed for a brand like Calm to need to be in the world. And so, you know, a lot of those types of things, right? You know, at that, at that stage, quite honestly, we, you know, it was it was a very early investment for us in terms of stage wise, but you know, the, the founders were, are, are remarkable. The, the brand opportunity was massive if they were going to be able to achieve it. And I think it was the right approach against the backdrop of what we were seeing in culture. I think that was built on top of a cultural shift, but I know there are some companies you guys have invested in. They are built on niche communities that have such a strength to them and such a robustness that they can eventually drive scale. I, I think uh, I'm thinking of you know Catchco, but but I'm just curious for you as an investor, like what are some of the niche communities that you guys have invested in or looked at in the past ten years that have really surprised you with how they've been able to kind of drive scale? Yeah, I mean Catchco is a great example of of something that you know in my articulation of why that's a listen investment. It's because. Again, the founder and, and, and the team there, Ross, is 
he is the customer. Like he understands intimately what it's like to be an angler, the inside jokes of the angling community, the the ways in which. But he also astutely recognized that the majority of the brands in the fishing industry don't have a relationship with the consumer, right? Because it's it's largely a retail driven business. And most of the manufacturers of products distribute to the Bass Pros and Cabela's of the world. And, you know, they have zero first party data. They haven't built, you know, they have a brand, but they don't have a relationship. And, you know, he, he saw the opportunity that you could build a relationship largely through content and community and obviously through innovation, then provide them with products and, and exciting things. And so, you know, what got us excited about that opportunity was, you know, Ross was, he wanted to build the community and the content and he was introducing innovations to them. The first business was that we invested in was a, you know, a subscription box of tackle, right? He's selling people a box. They have no idea what's coming, right? Like what an incredible business, right? It's a surprise and delight idea that's sold into people that are super passionate about an activity. Um, and it's done through the understanding of, you know, the content that, that these folks want to be surrounded by. And so the tonality of the brand and the, their, their ability to execute against what that community is looking for is just second to none. And, you know, they're scaling beyond that into new business models, into their own products and continuing to innovate. So one of the things we're very deep believers in at Listen is that business, consumer businesses of, of tomorrow operate at the intersection of content, community, and commerce. And if you continually do that and you have an audience aggregated, you can continue to innovate in what you're selling that audience. And that's how some of these niche communities can get into very large businesses. Do you guys ever come across a situation where, you know, maybe you have a founder that is a product guru or serial entrepreneur, but they don't have yet the experience of building out a community and putting out content. So everything is there and you're just sort of waiting to see an inflection point of that community growing. How do you guys handle that situation? Is that where you guys can come in and say, okay, we can help you build out this content. We can start to sort of build the community for you or, or how does that process work if it ever happens? Yeah, I, th I think about all these things as levers that you can pull. And every single one of our companies, like, you know, there's not a playbook, right? Like they're not all coming to us at the exact perfect time where everything's operating seamlessly in that content community commerce. But we have to believe that there's glimpses of that opportunity to exist, that there's differentiation enough in the product and the business model that's going to enable you to also have a, an innovation around brand narrative. And if those are the cases, then, you know, the levers that you pull to inject content and community. And for each brand, it's going to be very different, right? Like, you know, we have a, we have a mortgage business that is, you know, growing extremely fast. You know, most people are like, well, can you build big community around mortgage? And my response to that is, I don't know what that community is going to look like. Are they going to be constantly talking to each other? Like the way that the Catchco community has been built? Maybe not, but is it going to be the first brand that people are actually excited to talk about in the world of mortgages? Yes. Right. And that's that's because you're talking about an industry that has never been consumer centric, right? That is built on locking people into rates and confusing them. But what happens if you actually put the interest of the consumer first? Can you build a brand around that? And will that brand be exciting enough that somebody's going to want to talk about that experience? And so there's not a playbook that we look for. There's just opportunities to 
kind of have that business model innovation meet a brand narrative opportunity that results in in the levers you can pull to build a consumer business. There's also some companies you guys have invested in, and, and Factor comes to mind. Congratulations, by the way, on the sale to HelloFresh. But Factor comes to mind as a brand or a company that sort of eases the transition for somebody who's looking to develop or take on a healthier lifestyle. And Calm kind of reminds me of the same thing. You know, I want to get more into meditation. I want to eat healthier. And, you know, these brands, these products make it just a little bit easier to take on that healthier lifestyle. Do you see that the same way, sort of the similarities between those two, uh, those two companies? Yeah, your your observations are very astute, Matt. It's uh, we actually have kind of a thesis at Listen that's built around what we call the factors of you, and investing in a better you, right? And I think that you know things like nutrition, right? Things like mental health, things like activity, right, and exercise, things like relationship health. Right. These are all areas of things that we're looking for. And largely because I think people are investing more in I, everybody wants to live better. Right. And so what does that mean and what can brands do to help you get there? And when you're when you're on that road with a, a consumer, your ability to make a deep emotional relationship is just greater. And so we look at a lot of those areas. And if you look at our portfolio from that angle, I think you'll You'll see even you know more companies that kind of start to fit it. Angels Envy, by the way, and uh, Stolen Whiskey are two of my favorite portfolio company of your guys. But I don't think those necessarily fit into what we were just talking about. But I had to give them a shout out. I, I, the food delivery market though is something that really fascinates me. And you know, you guys had success there. But what were some of the challenges? I believe I think you're on the board of of Factor. So what were some of the challenges of getting Factor to scale? Oh well. If I step back, right, we always kind of believe that the future of food is fresh. And so what does that mean? And where are there opportunities to invest in, in that idea? We looked at a significant amount of the meal kit companies and never, never got, well, never pulled the trigger. Sometimes because, you know, the deal was moving too fast. Maybe we didn't have the opportunity. Other times because we couldn't necessarily get our arms wrapped around the unit economic model of something that seemingly was super easy to start up and stand up in competitive business, but also something that was still about making the consumer work. So it's an experience and you know people that get it love it, right? HelloFresh has absolutely built a behemoth of a business against it. But the unit economic model is tough. And so what we were looking for and why we were so excited about Factor was it actually solves a unique problem, right? Which is if I'm trying to eat a certain way, maybe it's paleo, maybe it's ketogenic, right? And I'm strapped for time. It's very hard to go to the grocery store, prepare all those meals and be very diligent around maintaining that lifestyle. So conceivably, you might want to outsource your nutrition. And if you can provide people with your meals for the week, they're right there, two minutes, heat and eat. It's actually the best time to consumption that exists in the market, right? It's faster than you ordering Chipotle from DoorDash. It is, it's there. And you know that you've kind of taken that off your list of things to think about and do. And for a lot of these people that are very maniacal about their nutrition and their diet and the way that they operate their life, like that is a, that is really solving a problem. Therefore, the stickiness and the AOVs and the ability for you to drive great unit economics can exist there. Now, Delivering fresh food to people is a very, very challenging business. It's challenging from a hundred different angles. 
first and foremost, when you're in the food business, like, you know, the, the number one consideration and thing you think about every day is, you know, food safety. You, you got to make sure that nobody's getting sick from your food. And, you know, then it's 100% about taste and quality, because if it doesn't taste good, people aren't going to reorder it, right? Like, these are, these are things. Now, manufacturing fresh food at scale, and then logistically getting it to to everybody are really challenging things. And, you know, what we learned a lot along the way, there, this business was met at multiple angles with a lot of challenges that we had to get figured out. Kudos to the company and the, and the team. And, you know, Mike, the CEO there is an operational guru and just really, you know, we worked through problems as they came up and, and thought about how we could get better at different aspects of the business and build better operational model. But they were incredibly capital efficient not by choice always, right? Like they, they struggled to raise money um, in the early days, but that discipline enabled them to actually build a really, really compelling business model and, you know, really disciplined unit economics, which ultimately got us to to scale and, and, a, and a great outcome. I'm curious, the last year has obviously been crazy. Was COVID an accelerator for them? Just more people staying at home and more people ordering? And did that affect them in, in a positive way? Or or were there kind of challenges that they had to overcome? I would say that, of course, I think there was, of course, a small COVID bump in the first kind of month or two of lockdown, if you will. But the business was growing extremely fast prior to that and continues to this day to be growing extremely fast. So I wouldn't say that this is a business that was, you know, not growing. All of a sudden COVID happens and the behavior of COVID catapults us. It's not like Zoom, right? Like it was already growing. It was growing fast. There was definitely probably a little bump in March and April of last year, which was a little bit faster incremental growth than we were experiencing on a month over month basis. But it continues to grow extraordinarily today. And I think it's it's just a matter of the category is massive, right? Like when you, I love businesses that are like in categories that big right? Food is something we do as humans three, four times a day, right? Like we, we, we eat a lot. And so you don't need that many customers with that type of a business model to have massive revenue. And so can you achieve the, you know, a multi hundred million dollar business? Yeah, because there's got to be, you know, a couple hundred thousand people out there that want factor in their lives. People got to eat at the end of the day. But it's got to taste good, Matt. That that's, <laughs> I'll tell you what that you know you you got we got a couple meals that we had a we had to move off the menu for sure along the way. Uh, it's good they had your restaurant ordering skills on hand. I think as a board member, it sounds like those came into uh, came into play. On the topic of 2020, though, this is just something I saw as a consumer a lot. Brands reaching out in advertisements constantly, it felt like there was a lot of crises in 2020. So brands sort of took that as an opportunity to reach out. What, in your opinion, though, how do brands tread that line where you want to take the opportunity to reach out to your consumers, build more of a relationship, you know, let them know you're there, but also still remain authentic and, and choose the right moments and the right message? How did you guys sort of navigate that? through 2020? What are some thoughts that you have on kind of that, that tightrope that brands had to tread? Yeah. I mean, you hit the, you hit the word right on the head, which is authenticity is, is the most important thing. You have to have empathy for your consumer, but you also have to know when and why your brand should be commenting on something. And, you know, what are the rules for engagement as it relates to whether or not you have an editorial authority on said subject. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think, you often see times when brands get themselves in trouble 
is when they try to attach themselves to something culturally relevant that they have zero authenticity to be attaching themselves to. And, you know, it's, it's really a matter of making sure that you just understand the rules for engagement and, you know, what your community is expecting from you when things like that happen. And, you know, what's the right thing to do as a company, as a business, you know, we live in a world now where like, you're going to get called out one way or the other. And you got to have, you know, reasoning as to why you've chose to act the way you have and the behaviors that you've exhibited. And I call it glass box brands, right? I think it's, it was the name of one of the trends that I, that I've always followed, but glass box brands is like the business, the employees, the, like everything's in a glass box today. And the behavior of any of, of the company, the advertising, the communication, the social media manager, right? <laughs> that it's going to get out there and it's going to get, you know, called into question if it's behavior that is not aligning with what your promise is as a brand. So I got to ask, the Super Bowl for you must be, I mean, it's like the Super Bowl of marketing and I, for brand building. Are I, The bears are never in it. So we're never really that invested anyways. And there's no time in the future I see that happening. So for you, is the Super Bowl its own sort of uh, its own sort of microcosm of messages? And, and I guess like, is it your favorite time of the year? Is it your least favorite time of the year? How do you uh, how do you view the Super Bowl? Well, I am a huge football fan and a gigantic Bears fan, so I'm with you on the Bears will never in it. Albeit, I do start all of my Trivial Pursuit answers with, "Well, the Bears won in '85, so <laughs> it must have been the War of 1912." Um, but uh, you know, I, I love it. I love it because it's an event from a marketing perspective that everyone kind of looks forward to. I will be honest, I'm I'm usually pretty disappointed in the the lack of maybe creativity sometimes that you see. But you know, every now and then you're just delighted by some of the stuff. And you know, I I like it. I think it's that that always adds a lot more fun given the fact the bears are never in it. <laughs> <laughs> more time to analyze, more time to analyze. I guess now looking forward to 2021, what would you say is the state of direct-to-consumer investing right now? I mean, are valuations just creeping up like they are everywhere else? I mean, how would you say the market is poised for 2021? The first thing I'll say on that is that direct-to-consumer is, you know, I've always thought of direct-to-consumer as a channel, not as a business model. And so, I wouldn't say like, listen, would never articulate ourselves as direct-to-consumer investors. We have a lot of companies that have direct-to-consumer as their main channel, but eventually like omni-channel businesses are going to, you know, be brands that matter. And I, and I think through that lens, I think from a valuation perspective, I think, you know, I, I was telling someone the other day, like Cameo, which is, you know, an awesome Chicago kind of rapid growth story, anti-portfolio for us, I, I passed on it. But, you know, Steve and what the team's built is remarkable given the, the trends that we're seeing in the creator economy and what, you know, where they're at with that platform. But I'm, I'm bringing it up specifically because they raised $100 million this past week, which is awesome, incredible. They, they hit the billion dollar valuation mark. But when I read the, you know, the newsletters in private equity that day, they were like the fifth mention. And that's because there was like six other companies that raised more than $100 million that day, right? And so- I use that as an example just to say that, like, forget about valuations for a second. There's just a lot of capital that's looking for places to invest in innovation. And so you're continuing to see, you know, massive late stage rounds. You're continuing to see a lot of shifts in the ways in which companies are trying to find liquidity, whether that's with the SPAC movement or direct listings. I, I just, I think we're in a unique 
environment where there is a significant amount of capital sitting on the sidelines and investing in private equity and venture capital. And so in that environment, when there's a lot of capital chasing a certain amount of deals, you're going to see valuations for sure creep up. I think you know, every investment firm is going to have their own approach to what makes sense for, for their model. But I also think that we're, we're seeing unprecedented innovation and unprecedented market sizes and business models that are taking advantage of them. So, you know, the opportunities are big and massive, which is why you're seeing a lot of capital chase it. And I think it's, it's you know, interesting bringing up Cameo. When people think of consumer investing, I, I think maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just my sort of initial experiences. Chicago has traditionally been a little bit more of like a B2B, you know, SaaS traditional investing town. But how would you describe the consumer focus here in the Midwest, either, you know, from founders that are looking to start consumer startups or company, you know, investors looking to invest? Is it a strong sort of ecosystem for consumer startups, would you say? I wouldn't say it's strong, right? Like I, I wouldn't say that, you know, the consumer investment community in the Midwest and Chicago specifically is as strong as the B2B or, you know, SaaS investment community. That being said, there's a lot of great funds that have been super successful investing in consumer businesses. And there's a lot of great consumer businesses that have come out of Chicago. You know, I think we're we're making our mark for sure. But in speaking to that, I also think that what we, you know, we invest across the country. We're, we're concentrated investors, which is unique. And so if we're only making 10 to 15 investments per fund, like we got to find the right 10 to 15 companies. And so we're not naive to think that that's going to happen in one geography. I think that there's always going to be parts of the world where trends are happening a little bit earlier than other parts of the world. And so there, you're going to see a lot of consumer businesses come out of those markets, right? Whether it be New York or LA or some of the places where you see a lot of consumer trends being early. And so, you know, we we try to keep our finger on the pulse to the best we can. Do you feel though, uh, maybe being from the Midwest and not spending all of your time in a coastal hub like a Silicon Valley and like a New York, do you think it gives you an edge from an investing standpoint or from an understanding brand standpoint? How have you thought about that throughout your career? I don't know if being here gives us an edge or our background or you know the Midwest mentality. I, I don't know. People, people use all those descriptions, right? I think you know, for us, we just try to stay in our lane and do what we do and, and look for opportunities that make it a listen type of investment. You know, and I think it's about your model, right? Like if I had a different strategy where I was investing in 30 to 50 companies per fund and I was consumer, like you bet I'd probably be you know, setting up an office out on the West Coast and trying to write small checks and as many great consumer opportunities and hope hoping I get into the next Uber and those types of deals. But like we've built a model that's different than that. It's maybe a bit contrarian to some of the venture strategy out there, but you know, we try to stay in our lane, look for the deals that make sense for us and look where we can add value. And so I think every, you know, every firm's got a different approach. And so geography wise, if that's a part of your approach, of course, it's going to be important. But for us, it's, it's a matter of trying to meet the, the best consumer entrepreneurs that are really trying to change the narrative. And you've been involved now in the Chicago startup VC ecosystem for 10 years. How would you say it's grown in the past 10 years? And what's kind of your prognosis for the future for Chicago? I think it's grown nicely. I mean, you know, I think I think the one thing about Chicago that's nice is that everyone kind of knows each other. We all root for Chicago. You know, I think we're all kind of Chicago fans. And, um, you know, it's grown nicely. I think we could always use more capital here. And it's and specifically at certain stages, right? I think 
more funds that are that are writing kind of the ten to twenty million dollar you know big Series A or Series B check would be great to have here. You know, like Drive Capital in Ohio, like they're they're doing a lot in the Midwest, right? And they're that was their thesis. Like, let's go build a West Coast type size firm in the Midwest and and try to take take advantage of that opportunity. And so, you know, I think. It'd be great to see more funds from the Midwest being able to write those checks into those companies. But to be honest, like great investors are going to find great deals. And, you know, you look at the Series A and B investors in Cameo and it's names that we've all heard of. Right. So, you know, I think I think it's a matter of the business. I think it's a matter of what investors you want to to move the needle for you. And, you know, I, I think Chicago, I think is in a good spot. I think there's a number of awesome companies that you know, have either exited recently or on the verge of massive stuff. And that's what you need to continue to generate a good ecosystem. And, you know, the people at those companies hopefully become angel investors and entrepreneurs themselves and you continue to generate. And that's why Silicon Valley is what it is. I think, you know, we're, it's going to be interesting in a more distributed world since COVID to, to see what geography really means. But uh, it's a great perspective. And I think it echoes some of the conversations I've had as well in the past. Um, I am of the mindset that the uh, the 2010s had the Blackhawks. So, you know, we had one dynasty. We need a new dynasty for the 2020s. Um, I don't know where it's going to come from, but I think you get that. Everything else falls into place. That's my personal investment thesis. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm with you on that one. So let's let's make it happen. I just had a few more questions before we before we sign off. You know, one is about the the outdoor space. You know, I know you said on a recent overheard podcast, you said, you know, mental health and the outdoor business are going to be really great places to be in 2021. Any specific verticals in the outdoor space that interest you? Are you looking more for the catch code, the really niche verticals that have a strong community built up? Or are you looking for businesses that can help enable people to become more outdoorsy and to make it an easier transition? I myself has gone have gone on one hike in the past four years. So, you know, I'm looking maybe to dabble a little bit more in the outdoor space this summer. So I'm personally interested in this answer as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think my point on that podcast was that I think it's intertwined. I think mental health and outdoors are overlapped, right? Which is, I think we've all realized in the last year that getting outside and getting some fresh air, maybe spending a little time in nature is probably beneficial for us. And I think that the opportunity and, and even the movement that you've seen with people, you know, picking up and, and leaving big cities or, or moving out to Colorado or, or Utah or wherever it might be, like, I think gives you a bit of an indication that outdoor activity or access to outdoor activity is important in people's lives. And so, you know, I think everyone needs a release and everyone needs, you know, experience and, and nature is is sometimes the best medicine. And so that's, I think, what I was alluding to with that comment. In terms of categories, like, you know, fishing is is obviously one we we're big believers in, obviously with our investment in Ketchco. I, I love that people always refer to it as niche, but, you know, what's so exciting to us is like, it's actually the second largest participant sport outside of running. And so it's bigger than tennis and golf combined. It's it's awesome, right? Because that's probably why people overlook it and we're super excited to be involved in it. But like, I think businesses and brands that are enticing people to do outdoor activity are interesting to me. There's a really cool company that's raised a bunch of money now. Um, I think most recently by Catterton called Getaway, which is, you know, building kind of these tiny home experiences out in nature, but very strategically 
within close proximity to city centers. So, you know, you want to get away and, and actually unplug. Like, what does that look like? That's the physical manifestation of a lot of what we've learned from Calm, right? Which is, you know, how do you give yourself some space and give yourself some some time? And so I, I think that's interesting. I think there, you're seeing a lot of stuff happen in kind of the RV and the glamping world, right? Like, so, you know, I'm, I'm always curious to see kind of how people are, as Ross from Catchco would say, rescuing people from the indoors. Love that. I love that. I also didn't know that about fishing, but that makes sense because uh, I haven't gone fishing in years. Uh, <laughs> I, I clearly need to uh, get more educated about the sport and maybe give it a go this summer. Maybe instead of hiking, I will give fishing a go. Glamping also sounds, you know, probably more up my alley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the thing that's fun about fishing, Matt, is like, um, I'm not a huge angler myself, but what's cool about the sport is that it's not costly to do. So you can tie a string on the end of a stick and put some, you know, put a hot dog on it and go fishing, right? Or you could buy, you know, a Viking cruiser and go deep sea fishing, you know, off the coast of Cabo. So like my point is, is that it invites a large swath of participation, which is why it's probably deceivingly bigger than most people think. Jeff, you had me at Viking cruiser off the coast of Cabo. I think I'm in. I think I'm, I'm going to give it a go. Um, all right. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask favorite Chicago restaurants that you want to give a shout out to that you can't wait to get back into once they're fully open hundred percent capacity. Oh man. Let's see. I'm a big fan of, uh, Momotaro. So, uh, that'll be fun. We, uh, we, our office is in Fulton market. So we often head over to, uh, Cruz Blanca, um, you know, for, for, uh, tacos and cervezas. So that's probably another one I'd throw on the list. And then, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good Chicago dog. So like, not that you need to go there to eat because you can just grab it and go, but Gene and Jude's, if you've never been to Gene's and Jude's, that's gotta be the top of the list if you want a Chicago dog. All right. I'm adding these to the list, especially Gene and Jude's. That sounds amazing. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to find you, follow you, learn more about Listen, where can they go? Just head to our website, I think listen.co and and you'll be able to access all the all the stuffs, you know, the Twitter and the, the Insta and you can find us on all the all the socials. And then tune into we we have a podcast as you mentioned a couple of times. Thanks for the shout out there, Matt. But it's called Overheard and we like to dive into all things uh, venture and culture. So give it a listen. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you on again in the future. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.